Man, it's great to be back here with you this morning. We're going to be in Psalm 6 this morning. So as you're making your way there, over the next three weeks, we're going to be journeying through a couple of different psalms and just taking a, taking a break, stepping back from our study in 1 Corinthians. We're going to be picking that up uh, when we get back into the month of June. And so we're going to be out for a couple of weeks and looking at a couple other things just to give us a variety and expose us to some different things found in Scripture. Now, I love uh, engaging the Psalms because what it gives us is, is something uh, different than most of what we encounter in our day-to-day lives. You and I encounter, uh, we read the newspaper, we watch uh, the news, we get updates on our phones, we have conversations with people, but rarely do we find ourselves just kind of engaging at the level of emotion, engaging at the level of just wanting to hear someone else's reflection of what it's like to go through different experiences in life. And, and we get that in the Psalms. We get just kind of this raw exposure of what it's like to be caught up in joy and, and what it's like to be caught up in sadness and, and what it's like, we're going to see today, what it's like to be caught up in the midst of sin. Now, as we engage this Psalm, I want to just lay a couple of things down as groundwork and just to kind of give you some bumpers, to give you some guidelines for how we understand suffering, for how we understand discipline. And so the first thing I think that I would say and would want you to know is that if you're encountering just difficulty and you look at the world and you say, man, things are just awful. I mean, we got famine, we got people starving to death, we got uh, people just committing tremendous atrocities, we've got sickness in my family, we've got all these awful things. And and, and what's that about? And is that what you're talking about today? I say, no, that's, it's not addressing any of those things. We recognize that, that God created the world to be perfect and sinless, and humanity rebelled against him. We engaged personally. We engaged corporately in sin. And on the basis of this, what was created in perfection is now marred with sin. And so because the perfect creation is marred with sin, we see that life is difficult. Sickness enters into creation. Famine. The wicked hearts of humanity run rampant and, and unchecked from our vantage point. And so that's, that's not what Psalm 6 is talking about. Maybe you look at your life and you say, man, my life is incredibly difficult. But if, if you're to be honest, the reason your life is difficult is because you've made a series of bad choices. When everybody else was investing in 401ks, your investment strategy consisted of running to the corner store and buying scratch-off tickets. And so you've spent thousands of dollars, uh, you know, hoping that, that this scratch off like, oh, I feel retirement. I don't feel it. I feel retirement. I don't feel it. I feel retirement. <laughs> Anybody got a dollar? I need to feel retirement, right? And so if that was your investment strategy. Then you'd look at it and say, well, that was just a bad idea. Now I'm suffering the consequences. Or maybe you made a bad decision. You're suffering the consequences. If I leave today and I go out and get blitz drunk and I get in an accident and I get a DUI and I get fired... I'm suffering the consequences. That's not because God is bringing active discipline in my life. That's me. I've done something stupid. I've done something unconscionable. And I'm going to suffer the consequences. Psalm 6 does not address that. This is what Psalm 6 addresses. There are seasons, unfortunately, within our lives when we are engaged in some repetitive, persistent sin. And when the sin is brought to our attention, when the Holy Spirit works to bring it to our attention, when we're reading the Word or we're not in church and and we get a notification that somebody says something about how close God is to them, we're angry. We would rather remain in our sin than have close fellowship with God. What Psalm 6 addresses 
are those seasons of life. And man, I pray, I pray that, that your experience in life is to read Psalm 6 and to have it be incredibly foreign to you. That as you read this, you say, I don't know what that's like. I've, I've never had some persistent sin in my life. I've never had a season in my life where I was engaged in sin, where I was enslaved to sin, and where I couldn't come up out of it and follow God. Now, we all sin. Amen? Raise your hand if you haven't sinned this week. Right? Good. Nobody's lying this, this morning, today. I saw you sneak your hand up over there. And so we recognize there's a distinct difference between dissenting and so engaging in saying something that's not true or doing something that's not right, but being caught up in a persistent lifestyle of rebellion wherein you would say, I would rather live in my sin than have fellowship with God. This is what Psalm 6 addresses. So we have to know that. We see that. And so then the question becomes of how do we receive the discipline of the Lord? And if this isn't us, what then is the call for us in our lives? Let's try and answer some of those questions this morning. Psalm 6 opens up and he says, quite simply, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to, gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. For I am languishing. And so the question becomes, what, what is the purpose of God's discipline? What is the purpose of God's wrath in my life? Is he, is he destroying sin? Is he somehow, am I being atoned for in the midst of this? Is somehow God uh, uh, atoning for sin? Am I offering a sacrifice, uh, suffering God's wrath in the midst of my sin? Well, we, we, we come to understand the answer to that is a decided no. You are not made more saved. Your, your salvation is not greatly enhanced. It's not moved along down the line for suffering in the midst of your sin. Now, how do we know this? Isaiah 53, in describing uh, Jesus, starting in verse 3, says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. When people saw Jesus, they saw him beaten. They turned their face because it was too ugly, too despicable to look at. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. Listen to this. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that did what? Everybody say, brought us peace. The reason Jesus suffered for you is that you might have peace with God. So in the midst of your internal conflict, in the midst of your persistent rebellion, you suffering and receiving the discipline of God does not bring you peace. Jesus did this. So God is using these things to restore you into right fellowship with him. Verse 6 goes on and says, All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one we have turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of of us all. John, in his, in his threefold letter, began to kind of address the same thing or for what is happening and how do we understand these things and how does sin incorporate, how is sin working in the life of the Christian? Look what he wrote in 1 John 2, 1 and 2. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. It is the plan and purposes of God that the Christian would not be caught up in repetitive sin persistent rebellion. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So in the midst of our sin, we have Jesus interceding for us to the Father, the Holy Spirit working in us to convict us of sin. But look what he goes on to say about Jesus. 
He is the propitiation for our sins, not only for us, but also for the sins of the whole world. So that in Jesus, we have forgiveness of sins. So over the course of our life, when we're engaged in sin, one thing the Christian has to hold on to and remind themselves is that when the discipline, when the chastisement, when the rebuke of the Lord is found in our lives, it's not an atoning for sin. It's not an atoning for sin. Because Jesus already did that. You're not atoning for your sin when you receive the chastisement, when you receive the rebuke of the Lord. But what we recognize is that God's love for you in the person of Jesus, when it encounters persistent, rebellious sin in your life, and it could look like whatever. It could be pride. It could be gluttony. It could be sexual sin. It could be you're, just, you're making idols of your family, of your job, of your health. It could be anything. When these things exist, God will spare no expense. He will find no limits he will turn your emotional life upside down. He will turn your physical life upside down. And he will invite external influences into your life to break you and return you to him. And you may look at this and say, this seems like the least loving thing possible. It seems like the least loving thing possible. But know this. Every single act of discipline God introduces into your life is perfectly tailored for your rebellion. Every single thing he introduces in your life is perfectly tailored for your rebellion. Not for the person beside you, not for your spouse, not for anyone else. It's perfectly tailored for you. And his delight is that you would come up out of that rebellion. This is what Psalm 6 shows us. So the psalmist is in the midst of this. He is experiencing God's rebuke. He is experiencing God's discipline. And you notice that there's no equivocation. There's no, well, God, everybody's doing it. Well, God, it's, it's not such a big deal. God, what is your problem? Can't you just move on? He recognizes in the midst of this that he's guilty. He recognizes he's guilty. When we're in the midst of rebellion, the one thing that cries over and over and over again that would keep us in rebellion is this declaration, I'm innocent. It's not a big deal. Everybody else struggles with it. It doesn't matter that I look at porn. Everybody does it. It doesn't matter that I tell lies. Everybody likes a more colorful story. It doesn't matter that I steal. It's not a significant amount of money. The first step, towards rightly receiving the chastisement and the discipline of the Lord is to recognize he is right in bringing it to you. And he is true in applying it to your heart and to your lives. So he's not saying, I'm, I, I'm innocent. I'm, I don't know why you're being such a, such a jerk about this to me. He's seeking to fall upon the grace and the mercy of God. Don't rebuke me in your anger. Don't chastise me. Don't discipline me in your wrath. Look at his description. Verse 2, he says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I'm languishing. If you ever catch somebody, if you ever spend so much time around somebody who is receiving the discipline of the Lord, it's not an easy thing to walk through. It, it's not this thing where you just, 
you're able to engage it a little bit and then step back from it. There is no reprieve from the discipline of the Lord. He is steady and insistent in bringing it to bear upon your life. So from the Psalms' perspective, from his perspective in this, he looks at it and he says, I absolutely can't endure this. I am being wasted. I am being waylaid. There is nothing left of me to offer. I am languishing. So from the midst of this terrible, pitiable state, his cry is for God's grace and for God's mercy. But we recognize in the midst of this, one of the most gracious and loving and kind things God can do is to bring his discipline to bear on our wayward hearts. It's terrifying. I can think of periods of my life where I was caught up in rebellion. There was something that was was seeking for my heart and seeking for my affections that I wanted more than I wanted closeness with God. And he came in and began to strip everything away. And in the midst of this, there's not this thought of, well, I'm going to get to the other side and God's just going to move on and it's going to be okay. In the midst of this, you find yourself desperately holding on to something that's tearing you apart. And the only way to describe it is languishing. It's horrible. It's awful. And if we're honest with those around us in our lives, when they say, why does your life, like, I don't know how else to say this, why does your life suck so much? Why is it so awful? You see, I've received the reproach of God. So that everybody that looks at you, that everybody that sees your circumstance, they're not thinking, they're not thinking that you're unlucky. It's warding them away from the same sin. It's warding them away from the same decisions. It's warning them away from the pursuit of sin to the direction of God. He says, I'm languishing. Look at how he begins to attack the physical element in this person's life. David, or the writer, cries out. He says, heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. In God's pursuit, in his desire to pull you up out of sin, he may attack you physically. God can begin to help your health to deteriorate. Begin to recognize, man, I just, like, I feel 50 at 20, all right? You know, I feel 60. My mother-in-law turned 60. I said, I said you know... 60 is a new 30. <laughs> but you begin to recognize that your body's just not functioning in the same way. Your body's not working in the same way. Now, the temptation, the difficulty in this is that every time sickness comes your way is not an indication of God's displeasure with you. We live in a fallen world. We're going to get sick. We live in a fallen world. We get older. We're going to break. But in the midst of persistent physical ailment. Some of us need to ask this question, are we continuing to suffer because we're engaged in in persistent rebellious sin? To not ask that question, to not ask that question internally and to not ask that question of others is, is incredibly unwise. Our hearts are infinitely wicked. And the delight of the enemy is to keep you in sin and to keep you suffering physically. To see your your physical ailments be brought right through medical intervention so that you could overcome in some sense or you suppose that you might overcome in some sense the heavy hand of the Lord's discipline. But look what he cries out. He says, my bones are troubled to the very heart, to the very core of who he is. 
He feels himself wasting away. He feels himself languishing. He says, my soul is greatly troubled. Verse 3, we begin to recognize the incredible depths of his suffering. Why? Because he can't even finish the sentence. He says, my soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord. And then he gives us this pause, and he cries out, how long? In the midst of suffering, the chastisement, the rebuke of the Lord, it feels like there's no end in sight. It feels like there's, there's going to be no end to this. There's no let up. There's no reprieve. It's never going to get any better. This is what it feels like. And all of this designed to restore you to him. It's not that God sits in heaven. He looks down and he says, you know, there's Kay. Everybody thinks she's a sweet lady, but really we know she's running a meth lab on the weekends. And so I'm going to introduce tremendous physical difficulty into her life. I'm just going to blow her away. And that's what she deserves. Every single act of discipline God brings into our lives is meant to be for our restoration and our return to him. It's perfectly met out. It's not too heavy-handed. It's not too lax. It is perfect for us. But in the midst of this, what do we recognize? In the midst of this, we feel like it's way too much. In the midst of this, we feel like God's anger and his wrath is being poured out upon us. In the midst of this, we can't see his love. We feel like he's a vindictive jerk, and he's got nothing better to do than to pour out his animosity on us. This is our perspective. But in a cooler head, in a place before we head into that, know this. God's discipline is perfectly tailored for you. It is timely, and it is right. So the psalmist begins to make an appeal. I can't endure this. I can't suffer this any longer. I, I just don't think I can make it. So in verse 4, they begin to make the first of two appeals. He says, turn, O Lord, and deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. The most amazing thing in this is that in each and every interaction that we have with people, if somebody violates my personal space, if they sin against me, if they, if they harm me, and they want to seek to have a continual relationship with me, most of their inroads are going to be some type of incredible apology. I'm so sorry. Do you understand the depths of my sorrow? I've changed. I'm not like that anymore. You can trust me. And so they're making declarations of how much they've changed, how sorry they are, and how our relationship won't continue this way anymore. But look what he asks. Look at what his entreat is. It's according to who? To his steadfast love. The appeal isn't in saying, God, I'm going I'm to relinquish this sin and I'm going to move forward and, and you're going to be so proud of me. You're going to gather up in heaven and, 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 and I'm going to be like Job where someday you might say, have you considered my servant Matt? Would you like to torment him? Okay, okay, I take that back. I'm never going to be like Job. I don't want any more tormenting. But most of our appeals interpersonally are built upon this, this mutual understanding that I'm going to be better, that I'm not going to do these things anymore, that I've sinned against you in these ways, but that's not who I am anymore. But our appeals for God's graciousness stem not from our fidelity, not from our faithfulness, but to his. Even in the midst of God's rebuke and chastisement in your life, he is being faithful to you. And that's so incredibly difficult to wrap our minds around. 
I can think of, of one or two of the most intense periods of my life where God has brought his chastisement and his rebuke upon me. I didn't feel like he was close. I didn't feel like it was fair. I didn't feel like the, the people he surrounded me with were helping me out at all. And he had leveraged my emotional state. He had leveraged my spiritual state. And he had leveraged the people I called friends around me to break me, to get me to the place where I had nothing left. I recognize I didn't have any, any mystical, I'm going to be good in the future. I didn't have any willpower to be better. All I had to offer him was brokenness. And that's where he was taking me all along. So all our appeals in the midst of this are to his steadfast love, to his faithfulness. This God who endures, this God who Paul writes in Titus, he says, when we are faithless, he remains faithful. God's faithfulness to you in the midst of sin and rebellion is to bring discipline and chastisement to you, perfectly tailored for you. Look what he says in verse 5. He makes an appeal to praise of God. He says, in death there's no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Our God is high and exalted and worthy of our praise, even in the midst of receiving his discipline. Even in the midst of receiving his rebuke. Look at how God in verse 6 begins to go after the emotional state of the psalmist. He says, I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. There is nothing manly about that. There's nothing, there's nothing machismo about that. There is only brokenness and being completely naked and stripped bare before God. This is where he'll take you. This is where he'll lead you. Where there's nothing left that you have to offer and all you do is cry and all you are is sorrowful. And all you do is mourn. This is how much he loves you. This is how much he cares for you. That he would strip absolutely everything away. He's stripping the physical away. He's stripping the emotional away. He wants you to be broken. To be empty. And being broken and empty, he'll seek to rebuild you. He'll seek to make you whole. Begins to describe, he says, my eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. And what we see between verses 7 and verse 8 is this interjection. That, that something has happened in the life of the one writing, that something has happened in the life of the one reading, and they recognize the movement of God, but not before he begins to describe all those who move from outwardly, his enemies, his foes. But you can see where God had been using the external influences to to punish and to, to bring his rebuke and to bring his discipline upon this person. For once he had been bringing them and bringing this external force to bear in their life, it seems that God has relented. And from this place of relenting, from this place of having broken them and seeking to make them whole, look at what the psalmist is able to say. 
where once he had all these people attacking him, where once he had all these people bringing an onslaught to him, look at what he says in confidence. He says, depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. You see the definitive nature that God moves to bring his servant, to bring the one who worships him into wholeness and into completeness. One of the things I'd have a note in this Sin always has consequence. Sin always has consequence. Lasting consequences in our lives are not an indication of of God's continued displeasure with us. It's just how it works. I had a friend who was a pastor, and he had an affair, and he kept it secret for seven years. For seven years, he kept it a secret. Eventually, the word was coming out, and so he shared it with people. Lost his job, and he's been outside of ministry for the last four years. Sin always has consequences. Is he able to step back into right relationship with God? Absolutely. Will things ever be the same between he and his wife? It's going to take a tremendous amount of work on both of their parts. Sin always has consequences. But God's delight is to restore us that we might have right fellowship with him. So we begin to think through this from from three different levels. I want to think through it first from from what it is to be a Christ follower. So you're someone who would say, man, I believe that Jesus died on behalf of my sins, that God raised him from the dead. That is the cry of my heart. That is the declaration of my life. And so I am a person who follows Jesus. If this is who you are and you find yourself in the midst of persistent rebellion and persistent sin, and God is bringing discipline to bear upon your life, then we recognize that we pick up right after where Jesse was in Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 8. The author of Hebrews begins to apply what is found in Psalm 6 to our lives. He says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that was addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. If you are a Christian and you engage in persistent rebellious sin, you will receive the discipline of the Lord. You will receive the discipline of the Lord. If you say that Jesus is the one I follow, Jesus is the one I serve, and then you find yourself engaged in following sin, his discipline is coming for you. This is not to terrify you. This is not to scare you. This is to communicate to you the promise of God. Verse 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. He goes on, he says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. And he asks this question. He says, For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you have kids, or if you were a child and and your parents were in any way, shape, or form involved in your life, 
there was a discipline structure set up. Whether it be, look, man, you, you did wrong, so you get a spanking. You did wrong, so put your nose in the corner. You did wrong, here's the naughty spot. Uh, I had a friend that his sister's form of discipline was natural consequence. So if the kid ate too much sugar, they got a stomachache. Punishment, the kid went to pull a, a hot plate off of something, it crashed and landed on them and maybe burned them. Natural consequence. It's odd. I wouldn't recommend it, but every family has some form of discipline. And so what the author is making this point of here is if you are a son or daughter of the king, you are eligible and will receive his discipline. So he comes to it in verse 8. He says, if you are left without discipline, summarily, he says, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If in the midst of persistent rebellion and sin, you feel no discipline from God, no compunction from the Holy Spirit, it's not an indication that God's giving you a pass. According to Hebrews 12, it's an indication that you're not a Christian to begin with. Now, that's a hard word. There's no way to soften that. If there's persistent sin and rebellion in your heart and you feel no remorse, no brokenness, no compunction from the Holy Spirit, it's not an indication that God's okay with your behavior. But it may be an indication that you're not saved to begin with. You bought into something, but it wasn't the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what he says. Requires careful, careful, diligent inspection on our part. Every son, every daughter whom he loves and receives gets to be disciplined. And his discipline is designed to bring us back to him. Not that we'd be punished, it's to bring us back. So maybe you look at this and you say, whoa, I'm so glad I've always been good. I'm so glad I, I, I've never been long in persistent rebellion. I'm so glad that my heart is tender towards the Lord. Friend, I would say to you, I am doubly thankful for you, for the ways the Holy Spirit has moved in your heart. But I can guarantee you, you are going to have someone in your life who is caught up in persistent rebellion who is caught up in persistent sin and who is in the midst of receiving the discipline of the Lord. And your call isn't to look at them in their life and to solely say, I'm going to step back over here so that when lightning strikes, it doesn't singe my hair or ruin my shoes. I'm going to stand back here and divorce myself from them and cut my life off from them so that when the crap just kind of rains out of their lives, it doesn't spill over into mine. If you are a friend or family member, if you know of someone who is caught up in persistent sin and consistent rebellion, what is your call? Well, look at just two things. We can't we could have a whole series on this. Back in 1 John, I think you remind them of this. One of the horrible, horrific things about being caught up in sin 
is this lie that says, God is done with me. Like He's so angry with me. All he's doing is pouring venom upon me. All I feel is his displeasure. You bind to that. And so you won't want to come back to God because all you've experienced is his displeasure as a friend, as a pastor, as someone who is journeying through this with you, as a broken person trying to be made whole by him. This is what we give to you. Chapter 1 and verse 9, if, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. God desires to meet you with forgiveness at the point of your rebellion, not the far side of some process of remediation and restoration whereby you engage on your own. When we confess our sins to God, I've been engaged in this process of rebellion. I've been engaged in self-seeking. I've been engaged in idolatry. I've been engaged in pornography. I've been engaged in whatever it is. When we confess our sins to God, he meets us at the point of our rebellion and he forgives us our sins. But look at this beautiful promise. And he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. You confess your sins to God, you're forgiven. You confess your sins to God and he takes all the muck and all the nasty in your life, and he wipes it out. He reminds you of where you stand in Jesus, fully righteous, fully forgiven, a son and daughter of the king. But it's hard to do this in people's lives. Man, it is so difficult for us to receive the chastisement, the rebuke of the Lord, but oftentimes it is so easy for us to dole out God's chastisement and his rebuke. We find someone sinning and we just want to slap them over the top of the head. We find someone sinning and we don't want to remind them and everybody else that will talk to us about how awful they are. Oh my goodness, have you seen Zach? He is an awful wretch. I mean, Kay was running the meth lab, but Zach, whoo! I can't even say in polite company the things he's doing. It's awful. You thought that shop was his business? Oh my. (laughs) We enjoy that. Some of us have this sick delight in in talking about the sin of our brothers and sisters instead of being broken for them and and, and interceding to God on their behalf and then coming alongside them, reminding them of God's love for them, his promise for them. So Paul writes to this church in Galatia. He says in chapter 6 and verse 1, he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him, listen to this, in a spirit of gentleness. Why? Keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted. You see our brothers and our sisters caught up in sin. A spouse, a husband, a wife comes to you and he says, I think think I'm just going to leave them. They're just an awful person. We don't do anything fun anymore. I don't even know them anymore. And and I've also reconnected with with a long-lost friend on Facebook, with a long-lost friend on Instagram, with a long-lost friend over the mail, with a long-lost friend at a reunion. Our response is people that love them and love the Lord cannot be, that seems like a really interesting life choice. You know? Let me just hand you off to somebody else. It's to to remind them of the truth, veracity of God's word. So you're in a covenant relationship with them. Man, let's get you in counseling. Let's meet with you. God loves you, and he doesn't want to see this relationship fractured. When somebody finally confesses sin to you, you know how hard it was for them to confess that they're doing something they shouldn't be doing? 
They've really struggled to articulate this thing out loud. There's a reason they don't have a great prayer life. They don't want to say it out loud. So if they finally come to you and say, this is my sin, here it is. Help them walk up out of it. If you feel overburdened and don't feel adequate, know this. No one is adequate. Everyone feels overburdened. They've asked you to help. If you can't do it, find someone else they trust who can help. This is what it is to be a friend. This is what it is to love them. God has not called us to rebuke them, to chastise them. God is utilizing us to be instruments for their redemption, just as he's utilizing their emotional, spiritual, physical, and external things around them to be instruments to bring about their restoration and their healing, so too he's using us to be beacons of grace for them, to mark the way back, to show how they might come once again into this relationship with him. But if you aren't a Christian at all, if you aren't a Christian at all, then in the midst of this, know this. There is nothing you can do to get further away from God than you already are. There is nothing you can do to get further away from God than you already are. The Bible describes your position and your predicament as being spiritually dead. It describes this in Ephesians 2. And there are internal, external, and supernatural influences seeking to keep you in this position. But chapter 2 and verse 4 in the book of Ephesians reminds us this. It says, But God being rich in mercy, because the great love which with he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. In the midst of your sin of disbelief, in the midst of running away from God, if you don't know Jesus, he would have you turn to him, declare him as Savior and Lord, the one risen from the dead and exalted to the right hand of the Father who has taken on your sin. And in the midst of his faithfulness, you might be forgiven your sin. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you that your word to us is true and right, even even as it is difficult. Yeah, this morning in... In this room, in the lives of our members, in the lives of those that will listen to this, we recognize that there are those of us who are engaged absolutely, 100%, in persistent, rebellious, unrepentant sin. So, God, my prayer for them is that they would not stay there long, that through experiencing your discipline, on them physically, on them emotionally, on them from external forces in their lives, that they would repent, that they would be made whole, that they wouldn't stay long in the place of sin. And Father, I pray for those of us in this room that know somebody that falls into that situation, that we would be gentle 
and steering them back to the truth. That we would be swift in showing them your love. And Father, I pray for those this morning in this room that have yet to submit themselves to the love of your son. That they would find themselves confessing Christ as Lord, crying out to be forgiven so that they might be made whole, having a right relationship and right fellowship with you, forgiveness of their sins. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.